Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 5, sponsored by the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, CGEN, Omeros Corporation, and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and their families cope with the psychosocial challenges of transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. This series focuses on survivorship. Whether you're five minutes into your survivorship or 25 years plus, we have perspectives that will speak to you, inspire you, and help you at every turn. We all know when patients enter survivorship, it is truly a gift, but can also be overwhelming at times and emotionally draining. So this season will focus on helping survivors and caregivers better understand the despair, mental challenges, some work career issues we'll cover, chronic graft-versus-host disease and the role it plays in survivorship, giving back, not giving up, finding your herd, and so much more. So grab a few minutes, grab some coffee, settle in, and get ready to be enlightened and educated as you make a few new friends along the way who will share their grit, intense honesty, and determination to not only get through this, but to thrive and live their best life. Today, we welcome Karen Hartman, a licensed clinical social worker and manager at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Today, Karen will share her perspective on many of the emotional post-treatment concerns of survivors. So welcome, Karen. Thank you so much, Peggy. It's really a pleasure to be here. Karen, our podcast today really speak to the mission of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link. We help patients and their families navigate the often daunting, life-saving experience of a bone marrow stem cell or CAR T cell therapy transplant. So let's talk about what happens post-transplant and in survivorship. There's just so much to cover. Yes, there is. There's just a lot to cover. For me, I think one of the really key aspects of this conversation is that survivorship, post-treatment, whatever term you want to use, is its own distinct phase of the cancer experience. That's kind of the bottom line for me. So I see it as, and I'm not the only one, but certainly many professionals see cancer in three phases, beginning with the diagnosis, which of course is a crisis and anxiety provoking and uncertain. And then there's treatment itself, whatever that may be. It can be surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, transplant, all of the above. And then there's post-treatment, which is what we're talking about today. And they are all part of the cancer experience. The first two we all know about, it's the post-treatment that I think bears a little more conversation. Some of the concerns, Peggy talked about the emotional concerns, and those are, are huge with cancer in general, but certainly at this point where for most people, the treatment has ended to some extent. We've recovered from our transplant well enough to be home and on our own and maybe even out in the world or recovered from chemo or whatever it is, we're done with that part. And so patients are no longer totally wrapped up and absorbed in their immediate health issues. They're not going to the doctor as much. They're not seeing the nurses as often. And they're really trying to get back into life. But ironically, this can often bring up a sense of loss because cancer is so all-consuming for patients and for their families to a lesser extent during the whole period of treatment. And all of a sudden, or even it's not so sudden, the treatment team isn't in our lives every day or we're not in theirs every day. So we don't feel as scrutinized, as intensely scrutinized by the treatment team. So that was ironically, again, sort of a sense of safety. You know, I was at the treatment place every week and the doctor was looking at me or the nurse practitioner, or I had all of my peeps at the cancer center looking out for me. And without that, 
there's a new sense of vulnerability. It's like all of a sudden I'm really aware of my mortality because here I am trying to do this without all of that support. And part of what happens then too is that people feel their fear of recurrence, the fear of the cancer coming back is really accelerated at this point because without that treatment, without those regular doctor's appointments, without the being in the hospital for the transplant, without the regular follow-ups, the frequent follow-ups, it just feels a little scarier. Uh, That fear of recurrence is actually a term. There are journal articles written about it. It's a fear that your cancer could recur, meaning could come back, or it could progress in the same or a different body part. So that's kind of a mouthful, but it means basically that, you know, I'm not out of the woods. It could come back. And people do think about certainly that with most cancers. Then there are the tests. Uh, We all know that cancer patients, I always say to people, you know, I'm glad you're finished with your treatment, but we won't let you go so quickly because you'll be back here for regular tests and scans and blood tests. And with every different kind of cancer, those tests may take a different form, but there's some kind of follow-up testing that will happen at certain intervals. There's actually a term coined about the way people feel about those tests. I can't take credit for it. It's called scanxiety, um, merging the word scan and anxiety, because that's really what happens. People feel generally pretty anxious, either anticipating the scan, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I had this cancer before, and they found it on a scan, and what will the next scan show? Or waiting for the results. Um, Sometimes people get the results right away, but oftentimes you have to wait a couple of days for the doctor or a nurse practitioner or somebody to let you know the results. And so that period can be pretty anxious for most people. Absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. There are so many elements to this, Peggy. Another thing that comes up is triggers, another term that means certain things to certain people. But in this context, it's about what's going to trigger my anxiety. Again, I break them into two different types. There's the ones that you can anticipate. And those are in some ways easier. So they're the cancer anticipatable ones. Those are doctor's appointments and scans and sometimes even driving by the cancer center. Um, Medical appointments. There's a term that somebody else, again, not me, coined called cancerversaries. Obviously, the merging of the word cancer and anniversaries because everybody remembers, don't they all remember, Peggy, the date of their transplant when they were admitted to the hospital, the date of the diagnosis, the first chemo treatment. Most people remember those dates for a while after they're finished. Another anticipatable kind of milestone trigger is holidays. Holidays, family milestones, graduations, birth of a grandchild, weddings, funerals, all of those um, you can kind of anticipate a little bit, a funeral maybe not so much, but you have a little notice about that, and can plan for those because often those bring up a sense of mortality. I'm here for this graduation. Will I see this child go to college? Will I be here next year? A year ago, two years ago, I thought I was fine, and then look what I've been through in the last two years. So they can bring up an awful lot emotionally for people. Mm -hmm. The other side of the triggers, the different type, is the unexpected ones. These are where you get blindsided, like a certain smell or a song, or somebody makes a comment, or you hear something on the news, and it just either brings the whole thing back, those weeks in the hospital after the transplant, or the words that the doctor said when she told you that you had cancer and these were the things that you had to go through. That kind of a trigger, you really can't plan for. It just blindsides you and you just have to kind of roll with it and acknowledge it and figure out how to get past it, but know that that's a normal part of going through this experience. We hear these things all the time, Karen. And Mm. I actually, one of the gentlemen the same season spoke about a certain song 
that stops him in his tracks because it was a song that he associates with when he was diagnosed. And I, I believe he talks about it in his podcast. So it's talk about just these parallels here and everything you've mentioned, we hear from our patients that call us and reach out to us. Uh, we actually have a second birthday program at the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link where we send survivors a birthday card for their second birthday during the birthday month you know, of their second birthday. And we get the neatest emails and phone calls just thanking us for that. It means the world to them. And that's a victory. That's a milestone that actually brings more joy than anything else. So I think it's important to celebrate the victories. And, and I love how you just say to roll with it. It's so important to anticipate it and then just get through it. Absolutely. And I love that idea of the second birthday. I've seen it on the NBMT videos on YouTube where people all talk about their second birthday. And it, yes, absolutely worth celebrating. Oh, it's so neat. So let's talk next about what happens with the relationships of those who love the survivor. What should survivors anticipate? You know, that's a really good part of this whole thing, Peggy. It's complicated because we talk about social supports and people having family and friends to help them get through cancer and how important that can be. And we're so grateful when there are family and friends who can help somebody get through it, and it does make a big difference. But what happens, and I don't know if but is the right word, what happens often when, again, the person with cancer enters this survivorship period where the doctors are saying, you're doing so much better and you don't have to come see me quite as often and the treatment is over and your body is healing. And oftentimes family and friends hear that as you're done, you're over, it's finished, thank goodness, you can go back to your life. And patients feel that as kind of a the support is diminishing, like people are backing off. They don't know that I still feel whatever I feel, tired, no energy, my hair still hasn't come back, I still can't really go back to work. So there's a little bit of a disconnect often there. And it again, letting family and friends know that this is still hard for people. It takes a long time to get, well, you know, it takes a very long time to get over a transplant to recover from that. People feel um, often their body looks different. We talk about body image issues. And it's easy to sort of put that together with somebody who's had surgery, but people who go through a transplant either gain weight or lose weight. Body image is a major issue for cancer patients the way they feel about their bodies, what they see when they look in the mirror, whether it's only a matter of fatigue and not having the energy to do what they used to. And that sort of invisible body image issue can be tough for families to understand. And then relationships. You talked about relationships, Peggy. Whether it's developing new relationships after completing cancer treatment or even going back to the old ones. I don't know if you've heard this from people that you talk to, Peggy, but patients tell me that almost always there's somebody who sort of fell off their support system mm -hmm. while they were undergoing treatment. Yeah, it's really common. And it's often somebody they really thought would be there, like a really good friend. To that notion too, then they'll tell us about someone that they did not expect at all yeah. to step up to the plate. We hear that very often. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I hear exactly the same thing. And I usually people talk about the person who fell off and then I try to remember to ask that second part that you mentioned, because I think that's, you know, not that it balances out the losing of a friend, if that's what happens, but it certainly is a pleasant surprise and one of the sort of silver linings of this whole thing. And then there's the how do you meet new people, whether it's a romantic relationship you're looking for, or even just moving to a new location and meeting new friends, new people in the PTA or whatever, and 
trying to figure out how to bring up or where this cancer experience even fits in a conversation with people in a social situation. It's complicated. Absolutely. I'm so glad we're talking about this. It's important stuff. And I think that some of the business that people can't necessarily anticipate, it's not medical. Most of it's really not medical. And that's why it's in the realm of social work and psychology and pastoral counseling and people like yourself who provide education to patients so they kind of know what to expect. We talk about this existential crisis that happens to people. And I know that's a big highfalutin word, but really it's about a crisis (laughs) of your life. You know, what is my life about now? Who am I now? What does this mean for me? How do I go forward having been through the crisis of a cancer diagnosis and a bone marrow transplant or CAR-T? These are such enormous treatments, and thank goodness we have them, but they are life-changing. And so it is a crisis point for patients. It leaves, especially young patients, really out of sync with their peers. You're not supposed to get cancer when you're 22 years old, and yet we all know that that does happen. But how does one get back to being a college student or a working person or a young mother after going through what's often at least a year of one's life with treatment? There is often for people at this point a real urgency about their goals. I really need to make some good use of my life now. This was a turning point for me. This was a message to me. Whatever people look at it so many different ways, then my life was interrupted for however long and I want to get back to it. Often, sometimes people will say, I just want to get back to the way it was. And I think you hear this, Peggy, too. It's never going to be the way it was. You can get much of it back if that's the goal, but cancer changes people. A patient once said to me, I've just been forever altered. It's like in my head all the time. You can totally understand how that happens. Real quick, Karen, I talked to someone this morning. It's so ironic, the timing. And this woman, this is crazy. Well, it's not crazy. It's real life. She got through cancer 20 years ago, and we were talking about her life now, and she said, well, I got a divorce five years ago. And I said, really? And she said, you know what cancer did? She goes, it gave me a new perspective. Uh, She said, and my husband and I realized after I was a survivor and completely, you know, in a great place, that we really were in a great match. hmm. You know, she goes in, it was a wonderful decision for us. She goes, it was the gift of cancer that helped me realize that perspective. Oh my gosh, the gift of cancer. That is such a beautiful way to put that. And the fact that they came to that decision together instead of acrimoniously, the way divorces often happen. Yeah, people look at the world differently after cancer. And it sounds as though they both did. So that was a good outcome if you want to look at it that way. Sure. People do. They look for new jobs. They decide to go to school or stop school or, yeah, it just changes everything. You know, I can imagine that because I know when you get home, many of us, we get home from a vacation and I want to change things in my house and I I just want to start a new something. Like It's just that wonderful new perspective that you get. And I can't even imagine how huge it is when you go through something like cancer. But it, it made me think of that. You know, it's interesting. Yes, people talk about not sweating the small stuff because their perspective is so changed. But a patient said to me once, you know, I knew I was really getting over my cancer experience or getting past it in some way when I did start to sweat the small stuff and it felt kind of good. So I like that. Yeah. That's interesting because when you're sweating the small stuff, 
life is pretty good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I guess that's one way to look at it, right? <laughs> it is. You need to kind of step back and view it that way when you're irritated with the guy cutting you off on the parkway. But you know, it is. If that's the thing you have to be worried about, then maybe life isn't so bad. Yeah. I guess if that's your biggest problem that day, it's not so bad. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, very good. Even that term survivor, Peggy, though, you know, I certainly wanted to touch on that. People have very strong feelings about that. Either it's a really proud label branding of look what I've been through and how strong I am. Or I don't want the word survivor because I don't want to be labeled or Mm -hmm. I don't feel that I've earned it yet because I still feel lousy. You know, whatever it is, it's it's a very, it's a lightning rod kind of term. We hear that about the new normal as well. Some people love it. Some people hate it. They want to change it, but then it really describes what they're going through. (laughs) Exactly. And then I hear people say, I don't want a new normal. I want my old normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so you've done a great job here, Karen, outlining so many of the important and timely issues regarding post-transplant and what to expect. So now let's dig into what really helps. What helps, yeah. And people will come to us oncology social workers looking for tools. And I've people say, I need a toolkit to get through this. And it always kind of makes me a little anxious because I don't really have a toolkit, but there are actually a lot of tips that I think to me, can be helpful. What I often say to patients is most of what I do is tell people what they're feeling is normal. So I think that's kind of where I would start. And our big word for it is validation, but pretty much naming the feelings that people have. So saying it's normal to feel anxious, it's normal to be a little out of sync with your peers for a time. It's normal to have to kind of struggle back into those relationships. All of that is normal. It's not comfortable and it takes some work. If you think about when a cancer patient is newly diagnosed and the doctor usually says, don't look on the internet. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of stuff there you shouldn't know because it's not going to apply to you, but it's 2021. People invariably will, of course, look on the internet for their (laughs) diagnosis, right? Their diagnosis and their treatment. They'll go to your website. They'll go to all kinds of websites, some of which are good and some of which are not so good, but that's what people do. And then for treatment, there will be a ton of information about the treatment itself. Think about the orientation in most cancer centers that do stem cell transplants. There's an orientation meeting often. There's a ton of information given to people about what to expect. If you start chemotherapy or radiation, you get booklets and cards, and then they'll give you booklets and cards about nutrition during cancer. And there's a whole bunch of education. But when people finish, We may give them a list of the medical appointments that they can expect in the next whatever period of time, but we don't usually give them a card that says, expect to feel anxious and to struggle with your communication with your family and maybe not to feel so great for a while. We don't tend to do that. So I think naming it and telling them that this is normal, this is the period of time after your transplant, after your chemo has finished, that you're going to expect to feel some of these things. It's normal. It's like a side effect. And then maybe um, some we call cognitive strategies. So ways to use your mind to kind of tell yourself that this is going to be okay and you have some control over it at a time where people feel pretty out of control often. I like to use checklists. I don't know if this is something that you do, Peggy, but like, even though I feel anxious, these are the reasons that I know I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing what the doctors are telling me to do. I'm following all of their advice. I'm going in for my regular checks I'm eating as well as I can. I'm getting as much exercise as I feel capable of doing. I'm taking care of myself. A checklist of things that can make me feel like I'm as much in control as possible. Terrific. 
Yeah, I think that's helpful. People talk about not getting back to sleep in the middle of the night and checklists can help. It's mm-hmm. like counting sheep, you know. <laughs> and I don't know if counting sheep actually works, but you know, the checklist I think can. And then strategies like meditation, guided meditation, and there are tons of them on the internet. There are apps for your phone. There are all kinds of helps out there for people to use meditation to kind of calm down those anxieties. Relaxation exercises, Reiki, you know, in the before COVID, there were all kinds of ways to relax. And now we have, are more sort of on our own to do it. But there are a lot of resources on the internet to help you with the guided meditation and relaxation exercises. And of course, prayer, the role of faith for people who have a strong faith, that certainly comes into play now. And then we talked about this before, but that finding meaning, some kind of putting some kind of purpose or meaning to this whole experience. And Peggy, when you said about the couple that got divorced, the what was the term that I say silver lining, but you said the gift of cancer. Yeah, the gift of cancer. You know, it's interesting to hear people look at it that way, because I can also hear patients say, what? What? Are you serious? This was not a gift. But then it is amazing how many people do get to the point of saying, you know, this really strengthened me. Mm -hmm. There's a term post-traumatic growth, which is sort of the positive side of post-traumatic stress. People do grow out of these experiences. Certainly that couple that you mentioned found what they needed and cancer was what did it. And then of course we talked about the triggers. So having plans for those triggers the ones that are possible to plan for. Um, doctor visits, I think, and this certainly throughout the whole cancer experience, but now too, writing down your questions. I think people find more time in their emotional life to think about cancer when they're finished with it than during the sort of crisis of treatment and transplant. That's understandable. Yeah. You know, somebody said to me once, I feel like when I was going through treatment, it was, and this is somebody who had multiple transplants, I felt like I was on a train and I just didn't look to the left or right. I just kind of went. But then when it ended, I was off the train and then the train's whooshing past me. And I thought, oh my gosh, look what just, I went, I was on that train. How did I survive it? Look at that. (laughs) There's such metaphors that people come up with who've been through this. It's kind of amazing. I agree. And then just knowing which triggers matter. You know, not every trigger works in the same way for everybody, but kind of knowing, knowing yourself. And some of that just takes some time to adjust to this period. One of the things that, and this is where the NBMT link certainly comes in and and my work comes in education and support groups at this time. Support groups can be helpful a lot. I think during treatment, sometimes they're a mixed bag, but for people who are finished with their treatment, that's where you get all this normalization and validation and naming and all these things I've been talking about in a support group of survivors of post-treatment. And there are lots of educational programs, whether in person or on the internet. That whole thing about family communication is pretty big too. This is a good time to sit down and talk about like, what does the world look like for our family or our relationship, given all that we've been through? And again, talking about survivorship and what it's like. I think taking control wherever possible is what people really want to do. You know, you hear people changing their diet. Your couple that you mentioned, again, with the divorce, changing my life so that I can do as much as possible to prevent this happening again. That's not always in our control, but feeling like I have some control over my life. And it might be diet, it might be exercise, it might be a new job, it might be going back to school. It can be all kinds of things. Spending more time with family, spending less time at work, um, 
that whole new perspective that you mentioned, Peggy, that's what helps at this point. And then I hate to say this because we have no control over this one, but just time. This gradually, for most people, does get better. That is so true. I have uh, one woman in mind that made me think of her. Actually, she's on my board now. And she said, mm. it's very important to me. Uh, she received uh, marrow from her brother. Ah. She said, it's very important to me to honor his gift mm. by taking good care of myself. And I, my former career was in solid organ transplant. And I can't even tell you how many times oh, yeah. that was the case where that's how they repay their donor. And usually it's a family member, not always. And just to take as good a care of themselves as possible to honor the gift. That's really, that you gave me chills. It's a beautiful story. I'm thinking of a myeloma patient who had, he had an autologous transplant, but then had a donor transplant. And his donor was not a family member. It was a young man from across the world. Oh, wow. So yeah, this patient was in New York and they managed to meet. At one point, the donor happened to be in New York for some event and they met. And it was, I was obviously not there, but the patient Talk about a second birthday. This was just the most mind-blowing experience for him, that this person across the world had been so generous to give him his life-saving donor cells. Um, but yeah, I think that's exactly right. People look at the world differently, and they just value every day in a different way. Until maybe they get to the point that my patient did of not valuing the day because she feels so much better, <laughs> you know? It's, it's such a mix. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just about being okay you know, being healthy emotionally. I'm so glad we had the chance to cover so many of these issues. Like you said, everyone's so focused on you at the hospital and getting you out of there and getting you better. And there is this whole phase of your post-transplant emotional health. And this is going to be such a gift to so many people. Hmm. As we wrap things up, Karen, is there anything else you want to add? I know we covered a lot and I thank you for your time. Oh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Peggy, really. I love talking about post-treatment survivorship issues because I feel so strongly that this is something people need to feel okay about. You're right. There's no right or wrong way to do this. I think knowing what is usually normal or what's part of the whole continuum of normal behavior and normal experience is really key. That's the most important thing to me. I think knowledge is really power. And especially in this case where people feel like they should feel better immediately or get back to life immediately. And that's not usually the way it works. It does take time. So having somebody say, it's really okay. This is going to take time. You'll get there is really, really important. And to be kind to yourself. <laughs> And be kind to yourself. Absolutely. Self-care, that's the name of the game. When we're having this conversation, it's just starting to be spring here in the East and it's beautiful. And self-care, going outside, getting fresh air and just taking it as easy as, as you feel you can. I think that's helpful. I agree. Well, thank you again, Karen. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, Peggy. And I'd really like to thank the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity to share these thoughts that are really so important to me and that I hope will help some patients and family members. Thank you again, Karen. My pleasure. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. Feel free to share this episode via text, email, or social media. For more, follow Marrow Masters in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes.